So I wonder what you value in a church. What do you value in a church? Interestingly, among churchgoers, evangelical Christians church shop, or you might say church hop, more than any other religious group. So in the last five years, nearly 50% of evangelical Christians have shopped, if you will, for a new church. Whereas in sort of older, more mainline denominations, that number is actually half, 25%. If you look within Catholic churches, that's only 20%. For Jewish gatherings and Muslim gatherings and others, it's even less than that. And actually, I think that says a lot about us, and I'm not sure all of that is very good. But what do individuals value, right? What's most important to them? What's most important to you when you're looking for a church? There was a recent study done by Lifeway Research, and according to them, the number one factor is a welcoming experience. They say it begins with bold signage, greeters in color-coordinated shirts, and a large, clearly marked front entrance. Some of you are laughing because you get it, right? We're not off to a great start. (laughs) The second most important factor is a clear, relatable message. Not too long, not too complicated, and whatever you do, keep the vocabulary simple. (laughs) I'm not making that up. I'm just reading it right from the study. Vicki Lloyd, she's, she's with us right here. So we might be 0 for 2 right now. Third factor, a personable pastor with a strong social media presence. (laughs) Now, I don't know why you're all laughing. I'm I'm hoping you're laughing at the latter part, not the first part. You know, personable by, you know, by what standards though? D.C. standards? Arkansas standards? Some of you will figure it out by now that I don't even know how to log on to my social media accounts. So we're kind of 0 for 3. We're not looking so good. Fourth, though, a vibrant kids' ministry. Okay. Fifth, authentic worship. I'm not sure if holy, holy, holy counts. I'm not sure how you even define authentic worship. But friends, if those are the five key metrics, I don't know if we're doing so well at UBC. So I wonder, what do you think? What do you most value in a church? And how do you think the Apostle Paul might encourage us to think about that question. Well, for that, I want to invite you again to return in your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians, the book of 2 Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, which you can find on page 964 there of the Bibles provided in the seat back before you. And if you're just joining us, visiting with us, the church in Corinth was really in crisis. We've noted that the problem wasn't that there was a church in Corinth. The problem is there was too much of Corinth in the church. And it seems that some of the church had risen up against Paul and they were questioning his integrity and challenging his own authority. And at the center of that conflict seems to have been a particularly influential congregant. And in Paul's absence, this individual rallied many against Paul and to his side and those divisions really threatened the unity of the church. And how Paul says the church ought to respond, in fact, says a lot about what God values 
and what we therefore ought to value in our own local congregation. So with that, let's read 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5 through verse 11. Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Well, there's one word I think that really jumps out at us in this passage. I hope it's a word you caught, used I think five times here in our English Bibles, and it's that word forgiveness. It's that word forgiveness or that command to forgive. And I think if we're just going to summarize, Paul's basically saying here, churches that extend forgiveness exalt Christ. Churches that extend forgiveness exalt Christ. And in particular, there's I think three aspects of this forgiveness that Paul's going to highlight. And these things are going to serve just as our sort of three points, our guide this morning. It's going to be forgiveness first, the kind of forgiveness that rescues the penitent, that reveals our obedience, and thirdly, ruins our opponent. So let me repeat those, sort of the the three headings we're going to have. First, we're going to be thinking about the forgiveness that rescues the penitent, then secondly, that reveals our obedience. And thirdly, that ruins our opponent. Let's think first about the forgiveness that rescues the penitent. That rescues the penitent. And just a heads up, this is our longest point because it's going to get us right to the heart, I think, of the section, which is there in verse 7. So we're going to spend a little bit more time in point 1 than in points 2 and 3 for certain. Now, at times... Coming to 2 Corinthians can feel a little bit like a puzzle because, recall, we have two of Paul's letters to the Corinthians, but there are two others we don't have, and we don't have any of the Corinthian correspondence that came to Paul. So it's a little bit like we're sitting next to Paul, and Paul's on the phone, and he's talking to them, and we really want to hear Paul. So we can make out kind of half the conversation, but we can't, exa- we can't hear anything really what the Corinthians are saying back to him. Now we can infer some things by how Paul responds, but we don't really have all the details. And so one of the challenges we come to verses like this is, so for example, who is this person in verse 5 that has caused pain? Who's this one that they're to forgive and comfort lest he be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow? And then secondly, what is this punishment by the majority that Paul refers to in verse 6? I think we have to have some understanding of those things if we're going to be able to make sense of of these verses. Now, to the person at the center of the conflict, some have suggested, right, they've hypothesized that it it was someone who was stealing money that was being raised, right? Paul was coming to them, if you recall back, remember that, that second experience of grace? 
where we talked about how that was actually visits where Paul was going to gather funds, and this was their opportunity to contribute to gracious generosity for the needs of the saints in Jerusalem. And so some suggest maybe this individual was someone who was stealing from some of those funds, perhaps. Uh, we, you read about that offering in chapter 8 and 9, for example. Others think it was one of the super apostles that Paul's going to highlight in chapters 11 and 12. Some think it's just some unnamed perpetrator who verbally sort of abused Paul there in public before the body. But I think it's more likely that this one being referenced is the individual, was that incestuous man that Diana read to us about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Right, the man who had his father's wife and the congregation was arrogant. Congregation was proud. And if you heard that reading and were listening, there in 1 Corinthians 5, the, the church was actually commanded to put that unrepentant man out of their body, out of their membership. And now it seems that he's penitent. It would make sense in these verses that Paul's imploring the congregation to bring that man back in. That would make sense of the reading. It's also the case if you look at our passage and compare it to 1 Corinthians 5, for example, some other links. So there's clear references to Christ and to Christ's authority and to Christ's presence among them. It's also the case that both texts have references to Satan, which is Far less common, but it's an important link between 1 Corinthians 5, I think, here in 2 Corinthians uh, 2, 5 through 11. So if we're to try to put the pieces together, Corinth operated a lot like Rome would have operated. It operated, you know, on patronage. It's like an old form of sort of cronyism. And the way you got ahead was largely by whom you knew. Right? It wasn't really by your abilities or talents so much as the friends you had. And we know from 1 Corinthians 4, 6 that this was a congregation that was, quote, puffed up. As in, they loved to favor their prominent members over their less prominent members. And so I think what's happening here in Corinth, I think it's likely that the church in 1 Corinthians 5 was not proud or arrogant because they were rejoicing necessarily in this man's sin, but rather that they had this man himself in their congregation. There was a prominent member of the community among them, someone of considerable status, someone who would have much in the way of monetary means, and they were choosing to perhaps ignore the sinful actions, it seems, of this prominent man rather than lose his favor. Right, His presence in their congregation, well, that gave this young body, these young Christians, it gave them some real spiritual legitimacy, maybe even some spiritual swagger in their community, right? They could point to this guy, right? He's at our church. You know, living in D.C. for years, it was interesting, whenever you had a new administration, one of the questions, less so now, but certainly years ago, where would the president go to church? All the churches would roll out the red carpet. They would in so many ways, right, they would make their pitch. They would present themselves as favorably as possible, hoping and praying that the president would come and he would gather in their congregations on Sunday with his entourage, and wouldn't that be something, right? Wouldn't it be wonderful to have him in the congregation? Wouldn't that put the congregation on the map? And of course, the temptation then is to what? Well, it's to ignore perhaps indiscretions 
to overlook offenses of those who are powerful and popular, to overlook those who might give generously to the church budget. And the risk in Corinth, as the risk so too for us today, is that we will value the power and value the position of our congregants more than the purity of Christ's church. And that's what they seem to value, the person and not the purity of the church. And so when Paul called for this man in 1 Corinthians 5 to be disciplined and put out of the body, that no doubt would have ruffled some feathers. That would have likely angered the man to be publicly singled out like that. Probably angered his friends. And they lived in a very stratified society. So the idea that those of the lower classes, even slaves, would themselves be putting this prominent man out of the church, right? That upends everything good in society. How would those of the upper class have felt? Right? Resentment could have grown. Grudges could have been formed. A man who will engage in the kind of activities as this man did publicly with his father's wife, my guess is he would not have had many, well, they wouldn't have been very reluctant, let's put it like this, to, to take Paul on. And he wouldn't go down without a fight. And so he could have likely publicly confronted Paul during that painful visit mentioned in 2, 1 to 4. And given his prominence, likely many would have been on that man's side. Maybe others would have sat there, confused, uncertain, fearful, and not saying a word as that man attacked Paul and defended himself. All of which resulted in that painful letter that we read about in 2, 3 to 4. We also read about in 2 Corinthians 7, 8. But in verse 5, Paul flips it and says, hey, listen, you know what? Yeah, the man has caused pain, and he certainly caused personal pain to Paul, no doubt about it. But Paul says, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure not to put it too severely, not to burden you too much, but to all of you. Right? Paul's saying, hey, listen, the pain that's been inflicted is not, not primarily a personal pain against me. It is, it's a pain against you. It's, a, it's an affront to you, the church. Because this man, after all, has sinned against them. He's the one who, by this whole charade, has turned this church into a circus of sin. He is the one who, by this dividing the body, it's not Paul primarily who's been harmed. It's their community together and their witness together as a church. That's what's been harmed. Friends, this is a good reminder right here that all that we do in private will have public consequences. What we do in private will inevitably have public consequences. I know it's common for people to say today that what I do in private is nobody else's business. All right, so long as it doesn't harm anyone, it's not your business, it's not government's business, certainly not the church's business. But friend, I don't think Jeff Zucker over at CNN is saying that anymore. It's not the case in the church. First Corinthians 12, 26 reminds us, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Right? There's a mutuality. There's a shared commonality to our relationships, such that what this man is doing affects them all. 
So again, just witness the confusion there in Corinth of what it means to be a Christian by this man's behavior and their acceptance of it. Think about the divisions in the body, right? What this man has done in private has enormous public ramifications for them as a congregation. And so it is with us. Our sins are never limited to us. They spill over all around us. And yet for such a one, Paul says in verse 6, this punishment by the majority is enough. So what's the punishment Paul's referencing? Right, that's sort of that second question, that second enigma of the passage we've got to sort out. Well, that word for punishment is actually not the normal word used in the New Testament for punishment. It's actually a rare word, only used here in the New Testament, and it was used in broader Greco-Roman society of a, of a kind of legal censure or of an official sanction of some kind. So this punishment doesn't imply pain so much as formal action taken, something taken judicially by, Paul says, the majority it seems, the punishment Paul's referencing here, it seems it's church discipline. It's church discipline. It's, again, what Diana read out of 1 Corinthians 5. And if you're unfamiliar with church discipline, it's when a church publicly withdraws its affirmation of a Christian's profession and removes them from the membership of the church, and they do that primarily by removing them from the Lord's Supper, by taking them from the Lord's Supper. Now, just to be clear, because different Christian traditions have had different definitions, it's not like how you would hear about it in Roman Catholicism, where excommunication of the church, to be excommunicated by the church, is actually to damn someone. It's actually to send them to hell. Like, we don't believe we're doing that. When What we understand from Scripture is when we exercise as a local church, church discipline, what we are saying is we can no longer affirm that person's profession of faith. And we come to such situations because that individual has persisted in some kind of clear, right, some kind of demonstrable, and some kind of serious, right? it's not minor offense, but it's a serious offense, and most importantly, it needs to be an unrepentant offense, as in they refuse to change but they continue to persist in sin, regardless of how many times they're encouraged, lovingly, clearly, they will not let go of their sin, right? That's really important. It has to be unrepentant because we all sin and many of us will sin egregiously. And if we put repentant people out of the church, guess what? There's no one left in here. No, it has to be unrepentant sin. And it's exactly what Paul called the church to do in 1 Corinthians 5. And that's, it seems, what they were reluctant to do, which is perhaps what necessitated, again, this painful letter. And it seems that they did do it. Now, if you're unfamiliar, this might seem an unloving thing to do. It might even seem a judgmental thing to do. But it's just, it's good to know that if you were to go back to Matthew 16 or Matthew 18, Jesus himself commands churches to take these actions. He understands it's not unloving, but actually the most loving thing you can do to someone in such a situation. And the goal is not ever to shame them. Did you notice how Paul never mentions the man's name? Doesn't do it in 1 Corinthians 5. Doesn't do it here. Refers to him really obliquely. Just 
kind of of such a one, such a person. In part, maybe to create a category, but I think in part because Paul's not trying to drag this man's name through the mud. He's not trying to shame the man as much as possible. They all know who the man is. Paul knows who the man is. He doesn't need to come back and list his name over and over, nor does he need to catalog his sins. He doesn't need to pursue that. He doesn't need to highlight every, every crime, right? He's not just going to rip off an old scab and pour salt in old wounds. He's not going to do that. Paul's actually quite tender and careful in his language. And though his, he's been attacked, Paul has, his goal is not the restoration of his reputation. But notice his goal. His goal is not to prove his own righteousness. It's not his own reputation, but rather it's the man's restoration. That's what Paul's after. He's after the man's restoration and their reconciliation as a church body. That's what Paul desperately desires. And that's the goal of church discipline, 1 Corinthians 5.5, so that his spirit might be saved on the day of the Lord. That's what it's after. It's not punitive. right? It's not retributive. It's redemptive. It's restorative. That's what church discipline desires to see. And Paul says that's what churches are to do. Not pastors alone, not bishops, not presbyteries, but churches. Because local churches speak for Christ on earth. And sadly, such actions like church discipline can create church conflict. It did in Corinth, friends, sometimes. It still does so today. But, right, our, our response should never be just to pitch it, right? If Jesus and Paul commanded it, we can't just ignore it. But no, we got to pursue it biblically, humbly, carefully, prayerfully. Now, as an aside, if you're one of those who is often skeptical about things like church membership, see it as a modern invention, I just want to note you have sightings, I think, right here, right in our text. Because, of course, to put a man out of the church's number implies he was, in some sense, formally already in the church's number. And if you're going to speak out of a majority taking action, well, a majority of what? There's got to be a majority of a defined number. Right? All this implies, in some sense, they knew who were a part of the body. They may not have had church membership roles like we do, but they had some sense of who was in and who was out and who they were responsible for. But here's the glorious thing, as I said. It seems that the church acted and the, the desire of the man's repentance is what happened. It seems like it works because Paul will say, right, it's enough. It's time, right? The punishment by the majority, right? That action, in other words, by the majority, it was enough. Now, verse 7, you must what? You must turn to forgive and comfort him. So whereas most churches struggle ever to start church discipline, it seems the Corinthian church didn't exactly know when to stop. Right? They didn't know when to say, okay, is this enough? You know, it's interesting, Paul doesn't use the normal word for forgive here. He uses a different word and one that highlights how this forgiveness is to be given graciously. It's to be given freely, right? Open-handed, big-hearted. That's the image of the kind of forgiveness the congregation is to express now toward this repentant man. And maybe because of all the pain the man had caused, maybe some of them were reluctant to extend forgiveness. I mean, yes, I know he seems contrite, 
And yes, he's walked away from that immoral relationship. Yes, he's publicly repudiated it. He's done that. He doesn't seem proud anymore. He doesn't seem angry. He certainly seems broken, right? We see him at church regularly. Everything about him seems different. Yeah, he seems like a humbled man. But remember the pain he caused? Remember what trouble he put us through? Remember the mess that guy made? I know a good amount of that may be past, but maybe we should just let him wallow in it for a little more. Maybe just let him feel it a little more before we extend forgiveness. And Paul says, no, not at all. Forgive the man freely and graciously. Friends, forgiveness like this ought to be a fundamental mark of any biblical church, any church. We should value and long for and pray for and work toward relationships marked by forgiveness like this that Paul's calling them to. Because without it, you can't have any genuine, honest, and loving church community. You just can't have it. It's going to shrivel up and die. And we all love the idea of forgiveness, right? It's a beautiful thing. Forgiveness is a wonderful thing until we have to personally extend it. Until we have to express it. You know, I said, I don't know, last week, the week before, church is wonderful except for all the people, right? It's always the challenge with church. It's great in theory. And then in practice, it gets messy. We're going to step on each other's toes. We're going to say the wrong things at all the wrong times. We're going to do stupid things. We're going to sometimes do evil things. Because every one of us here, whether you are a Christian or not a Christian, you are a sinner. And we don't just have skeletons in our closet. Friends, we've got graveyards. There are mass graves in the heart of us all. And they are there. And it's the truth. And we're wicked. And again, we do wicked things. We think wicked things. We act in wicked ways. And is the church made up of hypocrites? Absolutely. It is. You bet it is. We all know how we're supposed to live. God is clear, and yet we don't live that way. Christ-like churches, we want them, but we struggle to be like them. And the difference is, with a Christian church, is they know they're hypocrites, and they're broken over it, and they don't seek to cover it up, but they're transparent about it. They confess it. And they repent of it so that over time, hopefully, we're a little less hypocritical. You know, it's for that reason some say the church isn't a safe place. And you know, sadly, sometimes I think they're right. And I so wish that wasn't the case. But you have to ask, I mean, is the world really any safer? Is it really any safer out there? Do you really think you can make it alone without a church family? You know, in the Bible, we get there together or we risk not getting there at all. Despite our faults, we need one another. This church needed one another, which means we need to learn what it means to freely forgive. And not only that, he calls the church to forgive the repentant man and to comfort him. Because the truly broken need comfort. 
right? Genuine conviction over sin. If you've ever been brought low in your sin, you know what that is like. It wrecks you. The, the offense of it, you feel it. The weight of it, the stench of it to God, it can sometimes, if, it can drive us to despair. And that weight can just be too great. And so we need the gospel comfort of others in our lives. If you've come here and you feel, even right now acutely, in some way the weight of your own sin and the burden of your own sin and you don't know what to do with it, I hope you've been listening to some of the songs we've been singing. Because as we've sung, and as you can read in the scriptures, the wonderful news is that Jesus bore the burden of our shame. He bore the burden of our guilt. There on the cross, a sinless man was sacrificed for sinful people like you and me so that the burden of our sins that prevent us from standing in the presence of a holy God, Christ would bear and leave them in the grave. And then he would be resurrected as proof that God had accepted that sacrifice so that when we look to this Christ and place our faith in him, we too can be forgiven. God forgives sinners. God justifies the wicked, we read. And that's his work. And if you feel the weight of that burden, Christ can take it right off your back. Repent of your sins. Look to him. He is gracious. His yoke, we read, is easy, and his burden is light. But if you're a Christian, recognize you need that same gospel because your own sins at times will burden and wear you down. And you need to know that that same gospel that saved you is the same gospel that is at work in you. That same Christ bears sins each and every day. Repentance is the Christian disposition. We, we repent regularly. And that's the gospel comfort we need. And in the church, it's not just a passing hug. It's not just an occasional hello. Yeah, those things are, those things are good. I mean, they're better than certainly not doing those things. But we need gospel words of comfort. We need deep gospel acts of comfort. We need the kind of Christian community where it is normal to be transparent and normal to follow back up. We may not do it perfectly, but we ought to try faithfully to follow up and to love those in need and point them to the gospel, point them to scripture, point them to the only place where true hope can be found. Lest, like this man, be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. You know that word for overwhelmed? It pictures someone who's being sort of swallowed up, like sort of the waters or the waves have come around him. They're too much for him. That burden on his back, perhaps, it's weighing him down. And so he's being engulfed by those waters. He's being drowned in those waters. And he slips under them, too exhausted, too grieved, too beat down by sin. And lest that happen, Paul says, the congregation is to come and in forgiving and comforting him, they are to grab him and pull him up out of those waters and rescue the man. That's what Paul's calling them to do, right? They're to picture in their own lives and community, the congregation is to picture what Christ's cross has already accomplished for the man. And in doing so, Verse 8, they reaffirm their love for him. The implication 
right there reaffirm is that the congregation's love never departed. It never departed. The discipline they took was born out in love. The time that the man was apart from the body, they remained in love, praying for his restoration, praying for his repentance and for his soul. And now they're called to reaffirm that love by formally restoring the man back to the church. And in doing so, Paul says, you rescue the penitent. And that's what forgiving churches do. But secondly, that forgiveness also reveals our own obedience. Secondly, it reveals our obedience. Paul says in verse 9 that he wrote to them for this reason, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. See, Paul's saying, listen, I wrote you that hard letter, and I wrote you that hard letter because I wanted to know if you would have a change of heart. That's why I did it. Paul wanted to know if they would repent, if they would turn as a congregation when confronted with the truth. Would they be humble and teachable, right? Would they be humble and teachable, or would they just be like recalcitrant, obstinate, obdurate, right? Just like stubbornly refusing to repent and turn. What kind of congregation would they be? That's what the hard letter was pressing in on. Because you see, the measure of our own character is witnessed most in our willingness and sometimes, sadly, in our unwillingness to change when confronted with wrongdoing. Friend, just ask yourself, are you correctable? Are you teachable? And if you need some help, think, what happened the last time someone corrected you? Are they still your friend? (laughs) What happened maybe the time before that someone sought to correct you? Or do you seem to have a reason, right, an excuse behind every action, even when you know it's wrong? You know, all of us are born as defense attorneys, every single one of us. And what I mean is regardless of how guilty we may be, we will still seek to make a very compelling case of our own innocence. And we'll do whatever we can to justify our actions. Friends, does that describe you? You know, do you have a doctorate in professing your own innocence? A lot of us earn that doctorate very young in life. Or do you close your mouth? And when someone comes to you and confronts you, do you listen and do you reflect and do you say, yeah, you know what? You're right. Guilty as charged. And you know what? It's actually much worse than you just said. It's actually a, a lot worse. Like my heart is a 10-alarm is a fire, right? It's an inferno of sin. I could just go on and tell you of all the things that are so much worse than what you've already shared. That's not our attitude. That's not our instinct. But if we know our hearts rightly, if we're contrite before the Lord, it ought to be more like our instinct. We ought to be those who own up to own up with our words, right? We want to own up with our words and we want to be obedient with our lives. The, the heart of a genuine Christian is that genuine conviction over sin. Because that's what the true measure of discipleship is. It is obedience. I mean, Jesus' words in Matthew 28, yeah, they're to make disciples by going and by baptizing, by teaching them to obey some of what he said. No, all 
Jesus says. They're to obey all of what I have taught you. That's the mark of a disciple is this kind of obedience. And Paul doesn't want primarily, primarily their obedience to him. Right? He wants their obedience to the Lord. Remember back in 124, Paul's not lording his authority over them. They have one Lord. Paul's made that clear. Their obedience is to him. That's what matters here. And that includes forgiveness. Because Paul says, verse 10, look. He says, look, anyone you guys forgive, I forgive. So notice again how Paul, he's not wielding his apostolic authority like some billy club. He's not laying it upon them. He's entreating them. And maybe he's being so tender, if you will, with them because he knows how strained the relationship is. But it also may be because Paul just recognized as a church, they have to make this decision themselves. He's respecting their authority as a congregation to act. They need to take the action. And interestingly, Paul doesn't mention anything about divine forgiveness. Instead, he speaks to their need to forgive Perhaps in part because Paul recognizes it's that local church taking that man back that speaks to Christ's forgiveness, right? In forgiving him and receiving them, they're pronouncing formally what God has done in this man's life by bringing him back to faithfulness. And Paul says, listen, guys, I've done it. I've forgiven the man. And what I've forgiven him Verse 10, I've done for your sake, he says, in the presence of Christ. And that probably means in the presence of Christ with Christ's approval. In other words, Paul's forgiveness of the man should open up this congregation so now they're free and be encouraged to also forgive him. So when Paul's urging them to forgive, it's just good to note, he's not saying forgiveness means that they should just ignore the sin, pretend like it never happened. You hear some people say, oh yeah, forgive and forget. Well, that's not realistic. That's actually not biblical. We're not just to pretend it never happened. Nor does it mean there are no consequences in the life of the body. And it doesn't mean that they shouldn't continue to pray and long for justice. Just because we uh, we forgive someone who sinned against us doesn't mean that we can't still pray for justice in lives and in hardship and in wrongs committed. But what it does mean is that we will not continue to to feed the anger and the bitterness of the heart. That we would not continue to count their sin against them. And here it's within Christian community. Paul's saying you cannot continue to count this man's sin against him when Jesus does not continue to count yours against you. You can't do that. Forgiveness recognizes the wrong and leaves it up to Jesus to finally make it right. And that's hard. There's a reason why Jesus talked a lot about forgiveness in his ministry. If you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will say, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Right? It's so important. Jesus actually gives a whole parable of him, right? The parable of the unforgiving servant. Because forgiven people forgive. Which is why a failure to forgive, a failure to forgive may well reflect 
the failure of one who's never been forgiven. Right? We can't give to others what we have never experienced ourselves. And obedience to Jesus means this congregation can't continue to nurse old grudges. Right? We can't leave those who have sinned and are now broken in their sin. We can't leave them in the muck and in the mire of their own sorrow. Now, depending on what the sin is, and it may have been egregious, we may want to keep right, our boots in their back. We may want to keep them in the mud. We may want them in the flesh to suffer just a little bit more. We may want to recount all the ways they've hurt us. And that may make us feel righteous, but it may reflect the fact that we know nothing of the righteousness of Christ. Paul's saying to the Corinthian church, if Christ has forgiven this man and I have forgiven this man, what right do you have to withhold forgiveness? And friend, that is true of churches and it is also true of individuals. My friend, who might you need to forgive? What grudge, perhaps, have you been nursing? What bitterness of heart have you been feeding? What fires in there are you stoking? Maybe for days or weeks, maybe even years. Where you're continuing against them when Christ is not holding yours against you. Right? Christ calls you to forgive. And that must mark us. Because thirdly, such forgiveness, it ruins our opponent. It ruins our opponent. That may strike you as odd. Let let me explain, though. Paul gives them a reason to forgive in verse 7. He says, you got to forgive so the man will not be drowned by excessive sorrow. That's one reason he gives. But he actually gives a second reason here in verse 11. And he says, yeah, we're also to forgive so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Now, we hear that word outwitted. What do we think sometimes? Maybe outsmarted. But the, the word actually has the sense of defrauding or cheating or exploiting. So elsewhere in 2 Corinthians, it's translate, translated to take advantage of. So Paul's basically saying, I don't want Satan to defraud you. I don't want Satan to defraud you of someone who belongs among you. I don't want Satan to rob you of one who is your own. That's what Paul's getting at. Because Satan's way is to scheme. That's the sense behind that word design, right? It's he schemes and he schemes in order to exploit and to deceive, right? He is our adversary, we read, who prowls about, right, like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, 1 Peter 5.8. And Satan would like nothing more than to take what ought to be a beautiful moment of reconciliation, and he would like nothing more to turn that into that man's destruction. He would love that. Which is exactly, Paul says, what could happen if they fail to offer him forgiveness, right? The man could drown despairing of forgiveness, you know, we, we see this in some ways, even in some sort of historic Christian circles where they make this great distinction between venial sins and mortal sins, and mortal sins are those sins that will entirely cut you off from God, right? That's the kind of despairing that Paul's worried about for, for this brother. 
Well, friend, there's no such thing as mortal sins like that. It's patently unbiblical. I'll say, like, that's a scheme of the devil right there to get you to convince you right now you've sinned in such a way that God cannot save you. Now, we can have a conversation about what the unpardonable sin is. Let me say it's not that. It's a different thing. But there is no such thing right now. If you can hear my voice, you can repent of your sins and you can be saved by the grace of God. None of us in this life, while we have breath, are finally cut off from God. I mean, who was Paul? He was a man who was hell-bent on the extermination of Christians, right? God saved him. He can save any. Paul doesn't want to see Satan rob the community of one of their own. And he's helping us see that Satan wins. He wins in here when we choose to withhold forgiveness. He wins. When we refuse to forgive, Paul says, we do the devil's work. You may have been taught the devil's work was other things. That's the devil's work, according to Paul. Which means we fight Satan by extending forgiveness. Right? That's how we ruin him and all of his diabolical plans is we are gracious in our forgiveness with one another. So let me ask again, circling back, what do you value in a church? What do you value in a church? Bold signage? Relatable messages? Friends, I hope you see there's something actually much deeper that ought to mark God-honoring, Christ-exalting congregations. And it's a church that's willing to obey God in the hard stuff, like church discipline. Because a church unwilling to do so will make grace cheap and it will sweep sin under the rug. And yet, those churches must be equally willing to be obedient and extending forgiveness to the repentant sinner. You know, one of the most famous parables that Christians and many non-Christians know is that parable of the prodigal son. You know, it's the story of the young son who's tired of his family and he wants his inheritance and he wants it now and he wants to spend it as he please. And so he basically says to his family, I wish you were dead, give me what's mine as if you had died and I'm out of here. And he ditches his family and he goes to a foreign country and he lives it up, right? He, he took Ecclesiastes to heart. He's like, I'm gonna experiment in every possible way and what's under the sun. And he found that the author was right. It's meaningless, and he was left destitute with nothing. And in that moment, he remembered his father and his family. And he said, given what I have done, they would never accept me as a son. But maybe I could just be a servant. And you know, the, the young son comes back. And the father spots him from a ways away. And the father, it, seeing him, doesn't turn his back and walk away. He doesn't raise his voice and shout at him. No, he opens both arms wide and he runs to him and he embraces him. And he showers love upon him. He celebrated the return of that younger brother. But do you remember how the older brother responded? He got angry. He would not recognize the return of his younger brother. And he would not accept him. Making, leaving you with the impression 
that if he persisted, that wonderful celebration he would not be a part of because he had no part of the grace of God. As a church, we have that choice. We have that choice of whether or not we want to choose to be like our Heavenly Father. And by our own forgiveness with one another, we can rescue the penitent. We can reveal in that our own obedience. We can work to ruin the opponent amongst us. Or we can be like that older brother who in his own smug self-righteousness revealed that he never knew the joy of divine forgiveness. Friends, which will we be? Let's pray. Oh God, we pray. And we pray that where we need our hearts convicted, where surgery must happen, God, we pray that you would do it. You are the master physician. You know how to use that scalpel. God, we pray that you would remove in us that which is dishonoring to you, that a stench to you, and you would build in us through your spirit and in this community a happy, loving, free, and gracious spirit of forgiveness with one another. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, our our hope is always as we close that the mercy of our God is so much more. Let's stand and let's sing of that as we close.